Thank you, Parker and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Christianity Today writer Ed Stetzer was reflecting upon criticisms he had received over the years after preaching a sermon. And so on Christianity Today online, he just threw it out there for preachers and said, what is the strangest thing that anyone has ever said to you after a sermon? Well, Pastor Liam Thatcher was told, I couldn't focus for the entire talk because you had on some new glasses today. <laughs> Pastor Scott Slayton heard, your preaching has gotten worse since your baby was born. It's like you're not as passionate about God as you were before. Wow. Jason Spears was informed, coming from my other church and my former pastor to hear and listening to you, is like going from filet mignon to ground beef. <laughs> Jason's response, the next Sunday, unfortunately, in his youthful insecurity, he says, he handed her a small bottle of A1 steak sauce and encouraged her to go back to the steak if she saw fit. <laughs> Jeff Chandler heard, you're not like most pastors. When you say that you sin, we believe you. <laughs> Finally, Joe Puentes was told, you talk too much about Jesus in your sermons. I'm just going to have to find another church. <laughs> well, some of the church in Corinth were saying that Paul really can't be all that great as an apostle because... He's suffering. Real apostles, this theology in Corinth, well, it, it taught this way, that real apostles were able to overcome suffering, and suffering was a sign that God was not blessing. And so, well, Paul has been so very tactful with his response until we get to chapter 4. All of a sudden now, he becomes quite candid with those in Corinth. Tom Wright says he remembers as a little boy that his father would always, in the workshop, he had a tall table and Tom's little eyes at about seven or eight years of age were able to peer just over his father's workbench. He remembers on one particular occasion when his father was whittling away that the little stick he was whittling got thinner and thinner, to which Tom said, he thought in his little mind, what in the world is Daddy doing today? This little whittle piece of wood can have no purpose. It has no beauty. It has no reason. And my dad just kept on shaving and shaving and shaving till I thought there would be nothing left. I, I kept thinking in my mind, surely Daddy's finished now. Surely he'll stop carving now. Why doesn't he stop? He said, I even remember at seven or eight years of age saying something critical to my father about that wasn't nearly as pretty as the other things he'd worked on before. Tom reflects back. 
It is difficult to judge when you see a job half done. It is difficult to judge when you see a job half done. His father made no reply, but a few days later, his father's whittling made sense. Eight-year-old Tom came down to the breakfast table, and there in the middle of a bottle was a ship. A mask had been raised tall, and what he had been witnessing was his father working on the final little spar that was part of the ship that would go in the bottle that would stand so beautifully. After the rest of the family had gone to bed, Tom Wright's father had done what all men who build those ships in the bottle do. He inserted it so carefully, and he knew when you pull this thread at this intensity, the mass stand up, and people see it and wonder, how on earth did you ever put that magnificent, detailed, beautiful ship inside of that bottle? At no other stage does the ship in the bottle make any sense at all. Not until the final stage, a stage at which his father had purposely done after everybody else had gone to bed so they could marvel in the morning about the beautiful carved ship in the bottle. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 4. Oh, there's going to be a judgment one day. Paul says, God is good, and God is righteous, and God is just, and yes, the world needs to be made, put to rights, but you can't make sense of it now, more, no more than a curious seven-year-old boy can make sense of a little wooden spar that will go on a ship that will go in a bottle. The problem is, Paul is saying, we want to judge everything prematurely. We want to pay off the old scores ahead of time. We think we know what God should do, and we're eager to give God advice and tell others about it too. Some in Corinth were that way. They thought their new status and freedom as Christians, along with the Greco-Roman wisdom that they already possessed somehow gave them a right to pass judgment upon Paul and his ministry and his preaching. And well, quite frankly, it's hard for us to believe, but according to the church in Corinth, or at least according to some of them, Paul did not measure up to what they thought an apostle should be. And so Paul has heard that they have passed judgment on him and his ministry. Well, what's Paul's response? Well, not many people know, because in the common lectionary, which mainline denominations use uh, to guide their preachers as the text of the Sunday, Baptists don't do that. We each choose our own text. But in other denominations, there's a common lectionary that kind of guides preachers through the whole year. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just not the way that, that I do it. But in the common lectionary, this passage is never included. In fact, when I walked in the office morning, Tom, who's reading the passage, said, man, that's some tough stuff. That's why they cut it out. It is so very blunt. What does Paul do? You go home and read all the way through verse 21. Paul is sarcastic. Paul is scolding. Paul portray, portrays authentic Christianity as one of deprivation and suffering. 
Paul uses patriarchal rhetoric to reassert his own authority as their father. And and modestly, look at verse 16. He tells them, you quit judging me and start imitating me. And then look at verse 21. What you desire, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and spirit and gentleness? And finally, he threatens to beat them with a stick if they don't get in line. Figuratively, I hope. It's a tough passage. He's really get sarcastic. He tells them they're kings. Look at the end of verse 8. I would indeed that you were kings, that I might reign with you. Not a very popular passage indeed. You've never asked anyone, what's your favorite passage of Scripture? And they say, oh, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. I've got it memorized by heart. Well, let's look at what Paul's points. Paul says, first of all, the criteria of judgment is not success, but faithfulness. The criteria of judgment is not success, but faithfulness. Look at verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The measure of success of Paul's ministry is not success, but faithfulness. He saw himself as a servant of Christ, verse 1, and as a steward of the mysteries of God. That mystery of God of which Paul was a steward was the story of Jesus, the gospel, the good news story. And so they are judging Paul based upon his success. They see suffering as not success. And so they say, Paul, you're not very You're not very effective. You're not being very successful. You're over there hurting and suffering, and you're not winning. You're you're not winning, Paul. And Paul says, winning is not the measure. The measure is trustworthiness. I, I would say, in fact, unfortunately, certainly not about you, but In many churches, the ministers or the pastors or the staffs, well, they're seen like football coaches. The pastor is hired. He assembles together a group of assistant coaches, and he takes the church on the playing field. No one ever explains it this way, but everyone understands it so, and he'd better win the game. We all know what happens to coaches and pastors who don't win. Paul says, now wait a minute. Success is not God's measure of ministry. I am to be found, he says at the end of verse 2, not successful, but trustworthy in the mystery of God that has been given to me. There's a second thing Paul says in his response to the criticism, and that's it. Any other valuation outside of God's is not only wrong, but suspect. Look at, verse, look at verse 3. But to me is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human, you could put the word day there, day in court, any human day, any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For if I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Apparently, there were some in Corinth who were 
well, they didn't have anything else to do. And they were like the callers into a sports talk radio. And, well, have you ever seen the Paul Feinbaum show? If you want to be entertained, listen to those who call in. And lack of wisdom doesn't stop the operating of the mouth. And they just talk and they talk and they talk. And they evaluate teams and they evaluate coaches. And it's very entertaining, not because of the wisdom that's shared, but because of the folly that's presented. Well, there were some in Corinth who, who could have called in to the Paul Feinbaum show. They could have called in and said, well, you know, I don't really like Paul. He's not doing as well this season as he, as he did last season. I, I think one of the problems is, and the discussion begins. Paul brushes aside their criticism. And indeed, the interrogation of any human court or any human day, it is of no matter to him. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Paul says, even if I judge myself and I myself judge that I am trustworthy or pure or successful, my own judgment amounts to nothing. Now, Paul is not prejudicial. He says what they think about him doesn't matter. But then he says, what I think about myself doesn't matter either. Only God's final evaluation of each of us really is the day and the word and the court that matters. On the contrary, Seneca, an ancient, wrote, Can anything be more excellent than this practice of thoroughly sifting the whole day? And how delightful the sleep that follows this self-examination how tranquil it is, how deep and untroubled when the soul has either praised or admonished itself and when this secret examiner and critic of self has given a report of its own character. I avail myself to this privilege and every day I plead my case before the bar of self. Seneca's saying, at night in my bed, I think about my day, and I praise myself, or I criticize myself, I defend myself to myself, and, well, it makes me so wonderful because I have an examined life. I'm willing to look at myself. And Paul, in contrast, says, what you think about yourself doesn't matter. What God thinks and says, no, what God knows about us is the only word that matters. That's the third thing the apostle says. When we judge the motives of others, we put ourselves in the seat of God. When we judge the motives of others, we put ourselves in the seat of God. This is the main point, isn't it? He says something very much like that, ironically, in Romans 4, just like 1 Corinthians 4. In Romans 4, he says, Who are you? to pass judgment on the servant of another. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? What Paul is saying to Corinth is, back off, it's none of your business, I will answer to God, and do not pass judgment on the little spar being whittled until you see it in the bottle, until the day the Lord comes. Now, Paul is not saying that we will not be judged. He is certain that we will, but he is certain that the judge will not be the Corinthians who are calling into the talk radio show. 
Rather, it will be God himself passing the judgment. Now, what is it that we're not to judge? Let's be real clear here. Paul is not saying that we cannot say sin is sin. In fact, we'll see in chapter 5, the very next chapter, he chides the church because there's some immorality and the church doesn't speak against it. So it is not the ability to say immorality is immorality or sin is sin. That's not the kind of judging that Paul is rebuking here. But rather, he is rebuking when you and I make that inner judgment on someone else's heart. We know her motives. We know his motives. I know what he's about, we think to ourselves. It is so easy to set ourselves up as judge and jury, isn't it? People who look different, talk different, believe different. Some who are ungrateful and some who don't witness enough and some who don't preach like we preach and some who don't listen to our style of music and those who follow a drummer that beats a different beat and, well, those who take the diverged road in yonder woods and, well, we don't know why they took that path. David Griffith made a powerful observation. This was very insightful to me. Judging other people's motives is unique above all other sins. And this is why. Every time we sin, we put our will above God's will. Every time we sin, we put our will above God's will. And when we judge someone else's motives, likewise, we put our will above God's will, but we also put our will above God's will for that person. This sin, every other sin makes me my own God, and this sin makes me your God. You see that? Every time I sin, I'm saying I'm going to do it Howie's way instead of God's way. But when I judge your motives, I not only put my will above God's will in my own life, but I put my will above God's will in your life. And while God is the one, you are his servant and he is to judge your heart and your motives. When I do that, I have made myself a substitute for your God. Paul believes that the inner workings of the human heart are, are something beyond the ability of the human being to finally judge. Even we ourselves can't judge our own hearts fairly. How can we judge the heart of another? In fact, you might hear someone say sometimes, well, nobody knows what's inside of me but me. Paul would say, not even you know what's inside of you. But God alone can discern and know and measure and judge our motives. So what are we to do when criticism comes? Well, first of all, expect it. Listen to these criticisms. He keeps bad company. He's always hanging around losers. Why, that guy's a glutton and a drunkard. He must be a lunatic. That's Matthew 9, Matthew 11, John 7, and Luke 8. Those are the things they said about Jesus. He keeps bad company. 
He always hangs around losers. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He must be crazy. Those are the words said about the Son of God. So how could we suppose for one moment that the Holy One of Israel gets that kind of evaluation from those who would call in to the talk radio? How can we imagine that we won't hear the same? The Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, I don't know if it's still there. There was amongst the beautiful paintings a, a painting by Rembrandt from the 1600s. The painting's entitled Portrait of a young Jew. Beside the painting at the Fort Worth Art Museum, there's a plaque which reads, few artists are as well known or appreciated in our day as Rembrandt, yet at age 57, when he placed his signature on this portrait, Rembrandt was seen by many of his contemporaries as an archaic painter of an outmoded tradition. How many of you can give me the name of one of Rembrandt's critics. How many of you know the name Rembrandt? Everyone. Judged in his own day before his time, the art expert said Rembrandt's paintings were worth little. Well, show up to an auction today and see what it takes to go home with one. He's old-fashioned. He's out of style. He's out of date. And centuries later, they go for the millions. How we hear and handle criticism may say a lot about who we are. It, it may mean the difference between personal growth and alienation and stagnation within ourselves and so, when we expect criticism, we, we give various responses. We can expect it, but first of all, there's those who deny it. Paul is criticizing, judging another's motives. He's not criticizing, calling sin, sin. But when someone criticizes our heart or our motives, sometimes we just deny it. We will not hear it. We're not willing to be vulnerable because we feel we cannot be less than perfect. Sometimes we don't deny it. Sometimes we go on the counterattack. And as a person makes critical remarks about us, we point out everything that's wrong about her. Or we can emotionally collapse and panic. We're unsure and insecure, and we just crumble at the hard words that come our way. But it's best just to expect it, to hear it, and to measure it. If I were to ask this morning, Paul would have to be in the group. How many of you can ever remember someone critically judging your motives wrongly and it still hurts? 90% of people would raise their hand, yes. I was unfairly judged and I remember who did it and it hurt. George Bernard Shaw summed up the drama critic as a man who leaves no turn unstoned. Now think about that one. The man who leaves no turn unstoned. Critics will always have a place in this world, but we've kind of grown into a day when there are more critics and there are people actually on the field playing the game and doing the dirty work. 
For weeks, one of you looks forward to a new series on TV or Netflix, and well, two nights before it airs, a critic in the paper writes his obituary, it's no good, and you think, well, I'm not even going to watch that. It won't be there for me next season. I'm not going to start that. It's no good. There are reviewers of symphonies and concerts and art shows and fundraising events. We just need to start a column in the newspaper where someone goes to church and judges the music and the service and the sermon. Any day now, I expect to read in the paper a review of a wedding, pointing out that the, the ceremony had little substance, that the groom was miscast, and the bride's father admitted that the whole production was way over budget. I assure you on that last one. Not only are we to expect it, secondly, we are to evaluate it. Farmer asked a restaurant owner if he wanted some more frogs, that he had a lot of frogs in his pond, and, well, I can provide you with hundreds of frog legs, and I need to get rid of them. I'll make some money. You'll have it on your menu. And the restauranteur agreed that he would buy hundreds of frog legs, and so the farmer drained his pond, and sheepishly and ashamed, he showed up with two little frogs in each hand and said, all that croaking that was keeping me up all night was made by these two little fellows. I, I do not have hundreds of frogs to sell you. Judge it. Measure it. If we had no faults of our own, we wouldn't find so much pleasure in pouring them out in others. Third thing is employ it. Employ it. If one person calls you a horse, smile. If a second person calls you a horse, think about it. If a third person calls you a horse, you might go saddle shopping because indeed you might be one. Employ it. Get a friend who will tell you your faults are better still. Charles Spurgeon said, welcome an enemy who will watch you keenly and sting you savagely. What a blessing such an irritating critic will be to a wise man. What an intolerable nuisance to a fool. Fourthly and finally, avoid doing it yourself. A young musician's concert was received so poorly by the critics and famous Finnish composer Sibelius went up to him and said, Remember, son, there is no city in the world that will ever erect a statue to a critic. Theodore Roosevelt said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at, at the best knows in the end the triumph of the high achievement, at the worst he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Paul's words are hard, aren't they? Call sin, sin. He's going to sh show us that in chapter 5. But in chapter 4, don't make yourself God to judge the motives of the heart 
of another. As much as you want God to scoot over on the throne, give you a little space to call the shots, it's probably best, Paul says, to wait until that day when the righteous judge reveal the motives of the hearts of men. The one who examines me, Paul says, and you, and me, and you, is the Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, we all can have a censorious spirit from time to time. It's a hard passage. It's hard because we've all received it and we've all given it. We've all made ourselves the judge of another person's heart. And Father, even should we be right, we destroy ourselves in the process and gain them no good. Father, I pray this morning that you'll give us the eyes to see people differently this week and not place ourselves as judge and jury over those who are your servants, our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, maybe there's one this morning who, in the midst of this word, does understand there is a day of judgment coming, and the only way to the kingdom of God through that judgment is through the righteous blood of Jesus shed on the cross and they want God to judge them through the grace that comes through the death of his son. Maybe there are others who want to be a part of this church. Even as we reach out with all of God's word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.